This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 32nd episode of The Quarterbin, I'm looking at Batman Shadow of the Bat number 6 from DC Comics, cover dated November 1992. But first, just a little bit of feedback. I got a couple of emails about the three-part Palooza that ran from episodes 28 to 30. And thanks to Paul O'Connor for aggressively promoting those episodes. I know that there are some new listeners to the podcast from that. Faithful friend Luke Giaconetti send in an email with the subject line, If it's the 90s and the colors are fabulous, it must be Malibu. Professor, I very much liked hearing your coverage of Rune 4. I remember when Rune was coming out with Malibu making a lot of noise about having such an evil character as the main character of an ongoing series. For what it's worth, the one-shot Conan vs. Rune is actually quite good. If you can ever find that one in your quarterbin hunting, snatch it up. That came out during Marvel's attempt to revitalize their Conan book by restarting with a new number one and changing the title to Conan the Adventurer. That series didn't last, but at least it was decent to read. The extremely 90s-style Conan revamp, simply titled Conan, which came out later, was just awful. Now, I can't say I've ever read a Conan book, actually, other than Conan 100, which Paul Spitaro wanted to do something with. But that's all I can say on that. Luke comments that to him, Rune is little more than an Eclipso wannabe with Dracula transparency laid over him. Making Rune an anti-hero character dilutes the entire concept. If a guy is as insanely evil as Rune is supposed to be, either run with it or don't bother. To continue the Eclipso comparison, in his ongoing from the early 90s, Eclipso had zero redeeming qualities. He was a pure force of corruption and evil. The recurring protagonists of the series were Dr. Bruce Gordon, his wife Mona, the creeper Amanda Waller, and some other members of the crew trying to take Eclipso down. That plays better to me than making your supposed super evil bad guy have some sympathies from the audience. No, Luke, I actually like the Eclipso comparison. I, I hadn't thought of that one, but it does work well. Luke continues, Heck, the most successful supervillain series of all time, Tomb of Dracula, also followed this setup, so there must be something to it. You know, Luke's mention here of Tomb of Dracula in connection to these two issues has to make Paul O'Connor beam with pride. He mentioned in episode 30, the interview, that that was exactly the take he had on the character of Rune. Uh, more from Luke, P.S. Please don't lump Valiant in with Image when discussing the 90s indie boom. Until Acclaim bought them out, Valiant produced a lot of extremely well-done comics. This goes for both their Gold Key license characters, Magnus Robot Fighter, and Solar Man of the Atom, as well as their original books like Shadow Man, Eternal Warrior, Harbinger, and Archer and Armstrong. Yes, books that came later, like Turok Dinosaur Hunter and Secret Weapons, are not very good. But there is a lot of good Valiant books out there in the cheap bins. You know, I, I guess I can see where you're coming from, Luke, but 
I'm not ready to buy into that analysis just yet. I personally put Malibu at the top of the list, and then maybe even First Comics pretty high. I I don't know, maybe I've read too much of the later Valiant to have a lot of positive feelings for them, but maybe we'll tackle some of the ones you've mentioned here on the show someday, and I'll change my mind. Thanks for writing in Luke. Luke is, of course, the host of the epic podcast Earth Destruction Directive and a co-host on the horror movie podcast The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror or something very close to that, both of which are available in the Two True Freaks feed. Jason Trenner also wrote in about the Rune storyline. Well, listening to both parts back-to-back was fun. It was an interesting tale covering a vampire who's a real vampire, and not that sparkling-in-the-sun crap. Bella Swan would have been repulsed by Rune, and then very likely eaten. Yeah, that would be a comic I could get behind, Jason. Commenting on Paul O'Connor's take on his own story that I referenced in the second of those episodes, Jason commented that he thought the story sounded effective, and that writers can sometimes be the most critical people on their own works. Jason said that he used to consider himself a massive fan of the Ultraverse, until he mentioned that other guy who has a complete collection of every Ultraverse comic. I got this and that, such as the Godwill story when Thor showed up, an Ultra Force book that had Black Knight as the team leader, Exiles, and I also fondly remember the 90s cartoon of Ultra Force. How much it deserves to be remembered is another question. Well, Jason, don't worry. Being the second biggest Ultraverse fan behind Ben Avery is nothing to be ashamed of. Anyway, love the show as always and look forward to whatever else gets put on. Jason Trenner, a.k.a. Fanboy Miss Prime. Thanks, Jason. Again, thanks, Luke, and all the other feedbackers. It is greatly appreciated. Now, on to our story. Batman, Shadow of the Bat number 6, had a cover price of $1.50, meaning I acquired this comic at a reasonable enough 83% discount. That makes at least four issues in a row with a $1.50 cover price. Either that price lasted a long time, or it was just before the big bust. (laughs) Probably both, actually. Uh, The cover, by Brian Stelfreeze, shows a background of a burning American flag, with an overly muscular, short-haired blonde guy saluting, and an oddly sinewy and muscular Batman at the bottom half of the cover. The story, The Ugly American, was written by Alan Grant, with art by Dan Jurgens and Dick Giordano. The issue itself starts on a highway bridge, where a green, patriotic, made-in-the-USA pickup truck is tailgating a red foreign car. The driver of the pickup is not a fan of such vehicles, so he waves them over to have a thoughtful discussion of the globalized economy in the light of the post-Berlin Wall world. (laughs) No, I'm just joshing you. He drives them right off the bridge. Next time, by Homemade. The pickup driver enters a bar, and we see him decked out in his lovely tight black I Eat Roadkill t-shirt. He orders a beer, and when given the wrong brand demands, I said beer, not Mexican gnat water. Give me American. He guzzles it and tells the barman he's looking for a girl. Very special girl. Name of Tina. Used to work here. The barman sputters out that the girl left 
well over a year ago, got married. Batman dramatically enters the crime scene back on the bridge, just as Commissioner Gordon is being given a hard time by a pair of suit coat and sunglass wearing dudes. CIA, Commissioner. We can't afford any delay. We're on government business. Classified. Need to know basis. The two CIA agents, along with a not as well dressed Dr. Wolf, head off, followed by Batman in a totally spiffy, stylized version of the Batmobile. But they are relieved when the vigilante turns off another direction. The CIA guys have a file labeled Top Secret, the Ugly American, and refer to the target of their investigation as Payne. One of the agent comments that Payne is already officially dead. Grabbing a gun, he smugly declares, Worst case scenario, he just stays that way. We move to Kim's Mini Mart, where a nice young Korean store owner is offering very good customer service to his customers. His very pregnant blonde wife, Tina, waddles into the store proclaiming, My husband, the entrepreneur. Talking about their soon-coming baby, she says he is going to be which she never was, the happiest kid in Gotham. And then Payne shows up at the market, and we find that the very pregnant blonde girl is Tina, the girl that got married just over a year ago. And of course, she is Payne's daughter. And he is totally overjoyed about his daughter's marital choice. Nah, see, I'm joshing you again. He is not pleased. Not at all. When she introduces her husband, the Oriental Man, he gets violent, no surprise, accusing her of marrying the enemy, no surprise. Eighteen years they locked me away, Tina. For eighteen years I thought of you. Now I come back and I find you married to a, a foreigner? The CIA goons are one step behind, arriving at the bar. They learn that Payne has been there and find out where he went next. When they leave the bar, they have a run-in with Batman, who's been snooping around their car. They blow him off and head for Kim's mini-mart to find Tina, following the trail. Batman, of course, swiped Payne's file from the vehicle. From it, he learns that Payne's father died in the Korean War, and 20 years later, during another war, Payne snapped something awful at the sight of flag-burning protesters. He was sent to prison for life leaving his wife and two-year-old daughter Tina behind. In prison, Payne underwent experimentation in exchange for a pardon. They used LSD and other drugs to amplify his natural patriotism, as well as his fighting skills. But instead of becoming the most deadly weapon the U.S. ever manufactured, by overdoing the experiments, they turned him nutso and had to resort to keeping him in prison, while telling his family that he had died. And, of course, Payne managed to escape. Payne tosses his Korean son-in-law through the store's plate glass window. Batman arrives on the scene just as the father is about to rough up his daughter. Is that what they taught you after your mother died to go out with aliens? Despite being bigger and stronger than Batman expected, he is able to consequence the fugitive into submission. When the CIA goons arrive on the scene, they immediately line up Payne in their gun sight. I don't like guys who steal my property, masked man, one of them whispers. Batman notices the government sniper, but he does so too late. Payne is shot right through the temple and is dead before his body hits the pavement. That was cold-blooded murder, Batman tells the CIA. I had him beat. 
I told you not to interfere. It was an official termination. Batman delivers a consequence to the sniper's chin, but his two allies tell him that it would not be in his best interest to harm any more CIA agents. Batman relents, but not before scolding them for turning Payne into the raving monster he was. You called him the ugly American, but the truth is you and your goons are the real ugly Americans. Yeah, sick burn, Bats. Sick burn. Before disappearing into the night, Batman threatens to take Payne's file to the press. Instead, he leaves it along with an anonymous note for Tina and her husband. In the note, he includes the name of a lawyer who specializes in anti-government lawsuits. Daddy, what did you do when Atlantis attacked? I donned my iron armor to fight with Namor, the Submariner! That was Iron Man. What did you do when Atlantis attacked? I gathered a group of heroes to fight against a serpent crime with my mighty shield held high! That's Captain America. Try again! I spun a web any size? Spider-Man. Uh, I punished the drug dealers? I have no idea. But are you just doing another podcast? Another podcast? Yes. Mark's Mess vs. Atlantis Attacks, a 15-part limited podcast series examining the Marvel annuals that have the banner heading of Atlantis Attacks. A story... A story joining the Marvel heroes against the Serpent Crown. Find it at marksmesspodcast.blogspot.co.uk on Twitter at Mark's Mess Podcasts and on iTunes by searching Mark's Mess. Where's my fiber? And we're back. I'm patriotic in a fairly traditional way. I was living overseas for the bicentennial year 1976, and I remember spending the afternoon and evening of July 4th at the American Embassy with with fondness and, and real warmth. I don't believe patriotism and jingoism are the same thing. I don't believe that America's history is perfect, far from it, of course. But I do believe that she stands for certain things, and I'm proud of those things she stands for. So, my gut reaction to this story is that it's predictable, more of the same. The natural result of being too patriotic is always dangerous. It's something I've seen many, many times before. Now, this was 22 years ago, so perhaps at the time this was a bold new take on the subject, but I don't think so. Boy, was it a simplistic story. We joke that comic stories from 30-plus years ago have enough going on that today they'd be four- or six-issue arcs. But this one is the exact other way. This deserved to be no more than a 17-pager, not the extra-long 24 pages it got. You know, where the hostess ads or hodgepodge pages when you really need them? Look, it's hard to think of a stereotype that's not here. The Ugly American is an unsubtle, loud... American beer-chugging, American pickup truck-driving, obnoxious bigot. To be fair, Payne never spouted any god talk, so we did not get the last piece of the stereotype, the religious bigot. I'm actually giving Alan Grant credit there for leaving that out of Payne's characterization. But other than that one area, he's an insulting caricature of 
white American working class Joe the Plumber type or Joe Sixpack. Again, pickup driving, immigrant hating, commie bashing, and everything else. In the flashbacks, he actually calls the Vietnam protesters dirty pinko swine. I mean, come on. Pain is physically threatening or assaulting someone in almost every panel in which he appears. I didn't know where to fit this into the summary, but he kills a dog. He literally murders a puppy dog, a yappy little poodle. After doing the deed, he proclaims, I don't like foreign dogs. So it's not exactly a nuanced portrayal. And yes, racist comic book villains are supposed to be portrayed as evil sickos, but they're allowed some subtlety, right? Two things saved the story for me. The fact that ugly Americans' extreme violence and intolerance were as much a result of the government super soldier program than they are just his own natural feelings. Before the experiments, he did protest war protesters and called the names and engaged in some violence. He was sentenced to prison. But there was no evidence of sort of the racism or extreme aspects that come out later. So I can tell myself this wasn't his own bigotry and xenophobia at work here. It was the drugs and the programming that did this to him. That's a stretch, because he was selected because he was patriotic, and the story does seem to equate extreme patriotism with violence and xenophobia. But that part about this being a government experiment, that gives me enough to hold on to that this is not a flat-out statement that strong opinions and love of America are always dangerous, which actually may have been Grant's point. So maybe it's a stretch to get to that interpretation. Alan Grant is Scottish, and I don't know his political views on America. I I may be giving him more credit for nuance than the story and his own feelings actually deserve. Also, I mentioned one thing last time I covered a Batman issue in episode 25. That issue... Legends of the Dark Knight number 37 came out within months of this one. And like that issue, this one features a fallible Batman. Yes, he was one step ahead of the CIA in tracking pain, but he is legitimately shocked when they kill him. He did not see that coming. And the Super Batman of later iterations would have seen that coming and had, I don't know, a dozen contingency plans. After the fact, he threatens the CIA with press coverage and then gives the young couple the info in the name of a lawyer. But there's no evidence that the American government was hurt by these revelations. So I guess there's a hopeful ending. But I don't think Batman won this round. And to some extent, that's okay with me. On the cover, Payne is saluting, which to me implies that he's a military man, this along with the buzz cut. But even though he's part of a government program, he is not a veteran. He did not serve in the armed forces. His father did, and died in battle. But Payne did not wear the uniform, so that cover, having read the issue, seems a bit inaccurate. There's one other thing I wanted to address. I sort of joked about it in the summary. But a complication has arisen in the two decades since this issue was published regarding international business. I talk about this in my classes a lot. Just as a point of information for new listeners... I am an actual tenured business professor at an actual state university in the actual Midwest. So at the start of the issue, Payne runs the guys off the bridge for the crime of driving a foreign car, a Toyola, as a matter of fact. 
But the question of what is an American car, or an American product of any kind, is more complicated. There's no good answer to this question I ask my students, but I ask them anyway. If you want to buy an American car, should you buy a Ford built in Mexico or a Honda built in Ohio? Honda is the largest single corporate employer in Ohio. So which matters more, where the employees work or where the corporate headquarters is located? There is a booming auto industry in the U.S. It's just not in Detroit anymore. And a lot of it is manufacturing autos with foreign nameplates. So despite some problems I had with the story, it did let me talk about the modern global economy since the end of the Cold War. So there's that. The verdict on Batman Shadow of the Bat number six, frustrating. Jurgens and Giordano do their art duties like the solid professionals they are, and that helps. This is one of the closer calls I've had to make, but sigh, it is worth 25 cents. I think. I hope this goes without saying that this is pretty obvious by this point, but I have mixed feelings about this one. That wraps up my coverage of Batman Shadow of the Bat number 6, bringing episode 32 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. In episode 33, we'll be revisiting our good buddy Adam Strange in a 2004 special edition book called DC Comics Presents Mystery in Space. I'm hoping that one will be much more enjoyable to read and to comment on. No pressure, DC Comics Presents Mystery in Space. No pressure. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.